Our scripture this reading this morning comes from the book of Acts. You will find it in chapter 17, and it starts at verse 16. And I'll read through the end of the chapter, starting at verse 16. Now, when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others says, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took and they brought him to the Aerocopolis May it's saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Aragopolis, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being of Lord in heaven, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in, in him... We live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went away from their midst and some men joined him and believed among them what Dionysus Dionysus, the Areopagite, the and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Uh, you know, I don't really know if you've noticed it, but an old debate between religious people and secular people has uh, broken out again. Um, and it all has to do with the role of science to a Christian. You know, when I grew up, there was a growing consensus, especially when I was in college, that religion and science were very natural enemies of each other. 
Uh, it was explained that the age of religion is now passing away and being replaced by science because we no longer need the idea of a God to explain the way the world works. Science has figured all that out. Well, about 20 years ago, though, you began to see this conversation being popularized um, with what arose is what became known as the New Atheists, men like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins uh, and Sam Harris, all began to say that they made it their life's work that we just don't need religion anymore, at least not a religion that's in any sense true in the same way that science is true. So Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, explains it this way. He says, religion will always hate science because all religion is really about is about power. That is, once people learn how the world works through science, they're just not going to need God anymore because they won't need churches to tell them what to do. Well, that means that church leaders are going to lose their influence, and they just can't let that happen. So church leaders will always be in opposition to science. You heard that? Well, the reason why I find that interesting is because though it's a popular debate, it's not one that's taken that seriously among serious academics. Uh, Alistair McGrath is a professor of science and religion at Oxford University and has written extensively on the relationship between the two ideas. And, and in one place where he was writing, he points out this fact that the whole concept of science is based in many ways upon Christian doctrine not the least of which is the doctrine of creation. He says, think about this for a second. There are two things about creation that makes modern science possible. Number one, Christians always insisted that nature itself is not divine. But secondly, nature itself is also orderly. Now, why would that matter? Well, for two reasons. Number one, if nature itself is divine, in the way in which many mystical, maybe Eastern religions would insist that it is, then you and I are a part of that creation. And if we are, it's impossible to stand outside of it and critique it. But Christians were always the one who insisted, no, the created world is actually different from God, which means we have access to a perspective that's outside of it, open to investigation, or what we call science. Second thing about the world being orderly was true because science would never get off the ground if there wasn't something, there were patterns and structures in creation uh, that were able to be tested by scientists. The point is simply this, and, and I've spoken to so many people over the years who sort of have a base note discussion, or a, 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 a conviction that if you're going to become a Christian, you either got to be against science at best or, or at worst, you, you have to kind of check your brain at the door, your intellect at the door. But as Paul is making his way across Greece, he comes to this great city of Athens. And I'm guessing that some of the citizens of Athens thought the same thing about Paul. And the reason why is because by, by the time Paul gets there to Athens, the city had become renowned across the ancient world as a, as a religious and cultural and philosophical center. Uh, the city sprawled out around a sort of high berm in the middle of the city uh, upon which stood the Acropolis, uh, the temple to the goddess Athena. But in the lowlands around that berm were huge marketplaces full of vendors and visitors, sometimes visited by wandering gurus. Every now and then you would have scholars that would meander around. 
And what were they doing there? Well, verse 21 tells us, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It's a marketplace of ideas. It's where that phrase comes from. And so what I want to do this morning is a bit of a deep dive into how Paul approaches these people. But I want to draw attention to the fact that Paul doesn't shy away from these people. Paul is more than willing to take the claims of the gospel straight into the heart of the empire's intellectual and cultural centers to see how the truth claims of Jesus interact with him or critique it. And I think for that reason, Paul is a model for us. This, this sermon in Athens is a model for us as a church because we're looking this semester at what it means for Jesus to continue his mission throughout human history while being himself physically absent. And all we want to say at this point is, is that Jesus is not intimidated by intellectuals. Smartness is not an automatic qualifier for going to heaven. And the reasons can be seen in the way Paul approaches this sermon that he gives, which I want to outline in just two simple points. First of all, I want to look at Paul's skeptics, who are the people that he's talking to. And secondly, I want to consider his tactics, the way in which he goes about reasoning with them. Let's start with that first one. Look, right out of the gate, we see Paul very unnerved by what he sees around him. It says there in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him. Now, we'll get to what caused that here in just a minute, but notice what he does next. He begins to reason with the religious people. He goes to the Jews and the devout persons. Those are the God-fears we've been talking about. He's talking to those people with the, who have the Bible, people who would have some kind of background in the concepts that he's presenting. But here's the deal. He doesn't keep his religion private. Quite the opposite. He goes down into this vast marketplace, what the Greeks would have called the agora, and he jumps into their debates about what life is really about. And so right away in verse 18, we find that Paul is engaging with two major religious influences. And I think one of the reasons why Luke mentions those influences is because he's going to show us how Paul's sermon is interacting with these two worldviews. And they are called the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, who are these people? Well, let's look at the first one. Let's look at the Epicureans. These people followed a disciple, not surprising, named Epicurus, who lived about 300 years prior to this time. And you could sum up his belief simply this way. He believed that the gods, if, if they existed at all, were so far removed from human affairs and, and were so indifferent to what goes on with the, the puny humans down here that, you know what, why bother with them? The world was not created, so it doesn't have any real purpose. There is no future life after death, what you call your soul. It just evaporates when you die. And so therefore, if you're really wise, if you really want to live the good life, you should seek it in a, in a series of, of, of efforts towards undisturbed pleasure. To do whatever you can to sort of avoid pain, pursue uh, uh, your personal peace through, through mindfulness and friendships. And you know, the more that I sort of dove into the Epicureans, I started being surprised by how much this thinking lives on in our day, though without the same name. You've heard me mention before how much I admire people who are writing on what they believe is the reigning philosophy of our day, and we describe it with the phrase expressive individualism. The, the, the expressive individualism is the worldview that believes and insists on the fact that there is no truth that is higher than my personal feelings. 
Nothing is out there. All conviction in life, if I have it at all, extends from the individual. And the world around me, I expect, is going to honor my conviction about myself and reward me on my journey to, to my authentic selfhood <laughs> at the risk of being canceled if I don't. You hear young people say things like, look, hey man, go ahead and speak your truth. Or, hey, you do you. That is the spirit of expressive individualism. I was reading a blog post uh, recently by a pop psychologist who was trying to explain the path to human flourishing. Listen to this. He says, out of habit, we've learned to search for flourishing in the wrong place. That is why, regardless of our efforts and persistence, we can't find what we're searching for. Mistakenly, we continue to look, listen, outside of ourself to discover the experience of human flourishing. Did you catch that? You're not going to find what you're looking for if you're looking outside of yourself. There's not a better way to express the spirit of expressive individualism that way. But what I'm simply trying to demonstrate to you this morning is that human beings have been saying this at least since the book of Acts was written. The Epicureans are still very much with us because they would have been the ones standing alongside this generation with their glasses raised, cheering us on saying, hey, preach, brother. There is no truth outside of myself. So I should be allowed to live however I please. I can be whatever I want to be. I can shake off the bounds of whatever it was my parents tried to force me into being, for whatever my church tried to force me into being. What I'm going to do, is, I can even shake off the, the bonds of, of my own biology, and I can be whatever gender it is that I feel like I'm becoming. Well, at least for today. You never know what I'm going to be when we get to the future. My point is, all of that hinges on how you ask, answer that question. From whence does truth extend? Is there anything outside of me, outside of my own consciousness, that can tell me who I am? Or is it just a matter of my personal preference? Because if it's the latter, the Epicureans are still with us. If it's the former, we have some justifying to do, do we not? Okay, secondly, though, what about the Stoics? Who are these people? Well, so if the Epicureans are out having a party, uh, the Stoics are at home studying. Uh, or maybe they're, 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 they're at the gym working out. These people followed a philosophy of life. And I'm, I'm speaking very broadly. There's actually lots of versions of Stoicism out there. But in general, they believed, yes, there is a God, so to speak. But that God is more, not a personal God. It's more just kind of an orderliness of life. It's a principle of life, almost like a, like a mind that they called capital R, reason. The Greeks would use the, the, the word the logos to talk about this great mind. And while there is no God per se, the logos is, they consider to be divine, and is itself the fountainhood, uh, the fountainhead of all creation. Stoic author Cleathenes would say, we are the logos offspring. That's what Paul quoted there for his own purposes in verse 28. More on that in just a second. But what happened was, is the Stoics, it led them to a worldview in life that made them very rigid disciplinarians. They would talk about the good life and how to, how, to, how to flourish in life by taming these darker passions on the inside and emphasizing virtues and habits that got you closer and closer to the Lagos. Now look, my guess is for those of you from an older generation, you're thinking to yourself, well, I guarantee there's no Stoics around today. But if you thought that, you'd actually be quite wrong. I can almost guarantee that if you have any male ages 15 to 25 in your home, 
you have had multiple exposure. They have had multiple exposures to modern Stoics. Uh, at present, I was looking through. It turns out that the most popular podcast in the world today is the Joe Rogan Experience. I actually enjoy that podcast. Rogan is a very positive, um, I don't know, sympathetic interviewer, which makes him very easy to listen to. But he's also a man with opinions, and a lot of those opinions are very rooted uh, in, the, in, in the language of Stoicism. In a recent interview, I heard him say this. He said, look, I've been a bad worker in the past. I know the feeling of, sh of failure. I know the feeling of shame, being a weak and lazy person. I just didn't respect myself. I say, be the hero in your own movie. Uh, pretend that your life is a movie and, it's, and it started now. What would the hero do? What would the person you respect do? What would the person you admire and inspires you do? Now go and do that. You hear the themes coming out? Themes of practicality, pursuit of happiness through discipline, living very rationally and very peacefully, learning to be happy. That is the stoic ideal. You'll actually hear it coming from other voices as well. You can hear it from guys like Jordan Peterson, uh, Tim Ferriss, got another hugely popular podcast as well. By the way, all of which who have found giant online audiences, especially with young men. It's very interesting, the Stoics. Now, what's the point of his exercise? I'm simply trying to say Paul's audience is still with us. So when we see him interact with these philosophies of life, we actually should be able to gather insight into how we should interact with people in our present day, right? So Paul's sermon in Athens is very applicable. How? Well, that brings me to the second point. We've looked at Paul's skeptics. I want to now look and examine his tactics. In other words, it's not so much what he said as the way he chooses to talk to these people. Because I think his tactics are just as interesting as his content. And in many ways, it sort of speaks to some of the correctives I think we need in sort of, I don't know, early 21st century American Christianity in dealing with the world around us that disagrees with us. Let's see what they think here. Three things I think we see in terms of Paul's tactics. The first one is this. Paul studies the culture around him. Verse 16, I think, has this very powerful image for us. You know, Paul is waiting on news to come from Timothy and Silas. And so in the meantime, he has time to walk around the city. Well, what is he doing during that time? Well, he's taking it all in. He reads their poetry, we find, in verse 28. He, we find that he goes around and looks at their art examining their statues in verse 23. In other words, Paul makes it a point to observe his context before he starts to reason with them. And I do think of all the lessons to learn about how Paul did his early missionary efforts, this one is the hardest for us, for reasons I'm going to get to in just a second. Because I think there's an extent to which we never think about the fact that our preaching to the world, the message we want to get out to the world, never really translates or lands with them until we realize the specific forms that their unbelief takes. In other words, you can have all the theological accuracy in the world, but if I'm not taking time to listen, not just to the individuals who espouse the philosophies, but also to the authorities that they are listening to, then I'm, 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 my, my preaching to them is never going to be effective. My ministry to them, my engaging with them will never be effective. <laughs> I hesitate to use this as an illustration, but I think it's instructive. For my first two years, it's kind of stopped in the last year because I think you're getting used to me, which might be bad, but I digress. I got a lot of feedback from you, for some of you, and some of you are uncomfortable with it, about how often I would quote from uh, movies. 
and pop culture references. Uh, for some of you, I think it felt a bit uh, sub-spiritual maybe to do as much. But here's what I said to you when you brought those concerns to me. Look, pop culture is just that. It's popular culture, which means that to some degree, people are listening, consuming, and therefore being formed by those influences. And no more effectively than by the music and the art and the movies and the TV shows and the social media that they're daily devouring and are becoming for them catechizing elements. They're forming them into a spiritual view of the world on the basis of what's coming from pop culture. And Paul was able to do this. He spent long enough listening to their authorities in order to engage it. Now look, he's not watering down the message, which is kind of what we tend to think. I just, hey, we're spending all these time in the illustrations and we're not talking about the Bible. Yes, Paul never watered down his message. Look at verse 18. Makes it very clear that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. But he knew that he didn't couch those truths within a context in which it was intelligible to the Athenians that he wasn't going to be able to do what he ultimately was ready to do, which was to subvert those claims and show how they only could be realized and understood in Jesus. In other words, Paul is not accommodating to the world and his ways to the world, but he's doing so he can reason with them effectively. Okay, so that's the first tactic that Paul employs, is this way of, of engaging the culture around him. Secondly, though, he reasons with their assumptions. This is fascinating. Paul looks and says, I first want to, before we start, I want to grant that something that you believe is true. By the way, this is a fantastic way to start these conversations with people who disagree with you. Find something you can agree with. Find common ground. Paul does exactly that because he says, look, I was walking around your city. I was noticing your beliefs. I was seeing you interact. And I see that you have a statue to an unknown God. It's almost as if Paul reasons to himself, curious, curious that they would admit to the fact that while they worship a pantheon of gods, these people are open to the possibility that they might have missed something. See what he's doing? You know what? I think you have missed something. Suddenly he's got a hook. Now that he's got a hook, he can explain what the true God really believes. So the bulk of the sermon, beginning in verse 24, is how he goes after. But notice who he's preaching to. He's going after the Epicureans and the Stoics. And he says, look, I want to talk to you rather extensively about this God that you have missed. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, he says, look, he is the creator of the world. That was radical because the Greek gods were themselves created beings. They weren't really in charge, as you and I would say it. Verse 25, he says, and by the way, this God doesn't need anything. The Greek idols that you have need human beings to worship them, which makes them horribly fragile and remarkably insecure. Read the stories of the gods. Verse 26 is really radical because Paul comes and explains that God is the Lord of history. In other words, it's as if he's saying to the Epicureans, God is not so distant as you think that he is. He's the Lord of history. He is intimately involved with the affairs of human, men, human beings. He's there. He's not distant. He's close. Verse 27, he says, God made us for fellowship for him. In other words, he goes to the Stoics, as it were, and says, look, this God that you have, this Lagos, it isn't personal. And if he's not personal, then you can't have a relationship with him. No, this God wants you to seek him, and he wants you to find him. Finally, in verses 30 and 31, Paul says, look, because of the resurrection, 
God has made Jesus the judge of the world. And so you better start to look into him and investigate what he's about. In other words, he's saying, look, all of the questions that you have, regardless of whether your philosophy of life takes you to a life of partying and licentiousness, or whether it's taking you to a life of discipline and self-control, both of you need Jesus. And the resurrection establishes the reason why you do. One commentator put it this way. This is genius, by the way. He says, the two sides of God's nature that Paul taught cut against both the Epicurean and the Stoic views. The Epicureans saw the gods as personal, but remote and uninvolved in human affairs. They were the happy hedonists, teaching that life consists, consists of nothing more than following your desires. The Stoics, on the other hand, saw God as a life force controlling everything, but not a personal being to know and obey. They were the pessimists, teaching that life consisted of following your duty. To the Epicureans, Paul says, God is near. He is a judge. You cannot do everything that you want. But to the skeptics, Paul said, God is personal and he's a savior. You can know hope and freedom. He was telling the Epicureans, don't make an idol out of pleasure. But he was telling the Stoics, don't make an idol out of your duty. Look, I realize that's all a lot to take in, but I simply want to contrast some things here. And that is Paul's instincts of his sermon with ours. I do think that so often for us, when we, want to, when we see unbelief coming at us from the world, we don't do what Paul's doing is by listening, hearing them out, talking it through point by point, and trying to lead them through how inadequate their worldview is to explain their life. In our day, I feel like the voice of Christians is mostly about you know, taking a stand against such and such, against something or somebody. You know, we, we, sh we should formulate a statement against this. Uh, we, should, we should develop a, a position on this I issue. And those things, I'm sure, have their time in a certain place, but not as our first instinct. The first instinct of a Christian, at least the Apostle Paul, was to come in and to engage, to listen long enough. Look, I think that Paul shows that he has respect for his listeners and saying, look, I'm not going to stand on the sidelines and mock you and throw stones at you. Look, listening long enough to hear our neighbor, look, it takes, it takes a whole lot longer to do it. And you know what? It's also harder to do. But in both those ways, it shows us how to respect those people that disagree with us. And of course, if we don't, I think we have what we have today, which is a radically secularizing Western culture that has no need for Christianity whatsoever. Something's got to change in this regard. But thirdly and finally, the third tactic I think you see Paul using is that he aims for their hearts. This is the reason why you know he's going to be successful in his missionary effort, because the whole sermon is aimed at people's hearts. Look at verse 16 again. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him that he saw that the city was full of idols. In other words, at the root of his entire project was confronting idolatry in these people. Now, look, that Greek verb that's translated was provoked is interesting. It's a bit of a weak translation because that Greek word appears again in the Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint, remember? And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there's a, that verb is used, was provoked, by God when he saw that the children of Israel had made the golden calf. Remember that? He was provoked. Now, if you remember what that was like, we studied that actually this time last fall. If you remember exactly how God was feeling then, you can recall why the reason is that Luke has put this emotion now on Paul. 
Because he said what welled up inside of him was this reaction that was both jealous and heartbroken and compassionate and angry. In other words, Paul was so zealous to protect the reputation of the one true God. Why? Because he knows what it was doing to these people. What he's saying is, is your idolatry is not just a forbidden because you're not supposed to make statues of what it is that you care about. Rather, idolatry is this orientation of your heart to take ultimate joy in something that was never meant to sustain it. That was important. I need to say that again. Idolatry is an orientation of your heart to take ultimate joy in something that was never meant to be able to sustain it. Why? And, if, and if, it's, if my heart is not able to sustain it, it means that my worship of those idols, my service of those idols is bad for me. People hurt themselves and they hurt others. And so Paul wells up with compassion because he realizes that all of the idolatry he sees around them is racing people towards spiritual death. I thought about that phrase, spiritual death. It reminded me of a quote from Henry Nouwen, uh, where he write, it writes extensively on idolatry and how enslaving it is. When he says this, listen to this quote. He says, aren't you like me hoping that some person, some thing, some event will come along and bring you that final feeling of inner well-being that you desire? Don't you often hope, well, maybe this book, maybe this idea, maybe this course, Maybe this trip that I want to take. Maybe this job that I'm pursuing. Maybe this country that I want to visit. Maybe, maybe this relationship that I'm pursuing. Maybe this will fulfill my deepest desire. But as long as you're waiting for that mysterious moment, you will go on running helter-skelter. Always anxious. Always restful. Restless. Always lustful. Always angry. But never fully satisfied. You know this is the compulsion that keeps us going, and it's what keeps us busy. But at the same time, it should make us wonder whether we are getting anywhere in the long run. It's the way to spiritual exhaustion. It's the way to spiritual burnout. It is the way to spiritual death. See what Nowen is saying? Nowen has taken up Paul's thinking. Because Paul's looking out, and he's like, people are dying. They are hurting themselves and others. His posture towards the world around him is full of compassion. He was provoked inside of him. And he doesn't mean by provoked that he decided he would get on and, I don't know, write a blog or post a tweet or a Facebook post about these people, how wrong they are. His heart is broken. And I think the model for us is to ask ourselves the question, do I have that same approach to my neighbors? Do I have Paul's approach that he had to his neighbors? Because he's combating an argument, yes, but he's doing so with compassion because he knows how patient Jesus has been with him. That's where it comes from. And as we start to look at our mission in this community, may God make that true of us, that we weep before we go to confront, and as, but, but certainly confront as we should. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we'd by your spirit again, you give us insight and guidance into engaging with people around us, whether they be intellectual or whatever. We pray that we would be those that would listen long enough and listen well, that we would engage with what they're saying before we ever start to open our mouths and speak. So Lord, give us grace, we pray, to engage in our culture around us and see your gospel move forward. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.